Peace and peace to you friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge Season 1, Episode 69 for June 12th, 2022. Thank you so much for joining me today. I want to uh, thank all of my listeners. Uh, if you're a regular listener, thank you for coming back this week. If you are a new listener, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, you may wonder though, what is an Encyclopedia Challenge? And you may ask yourself, do I have to have an encyclopedia in order to participate? And those are great questions to have. And the answers are, you do not have to have an encyclopedia. Um, you don't have to read an encyclopedia. You don't even have to know what an encyclopedia is. Although, uh, I would like for you to know. So if you don't know what an encyclopedia is, I would encourage you to go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com. The link is in the description below. So that, again, that is theoaktreejourneys.com and select my earlier podcasts. Um, go to Encyclopedia Challenge and you can select my earlier podcasts where I read the pre preface of both encyclopedias um, to let you know what an encyclopedia is. Um, but I read the encyclopedia to you and we've got great news. Um, as my regular listeners know, or if you joined me last week, you are now a regular listener. Uh, we are in book two of the new Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So we are finally, finally in book two. Seems like we have been in book one forever, at least for uh, about 67 and a half episodes. <laughs> so about the half of 68. So last week we, we uh, switched over to book two. So that's exciting news. Uh, so I just wanted to, to thank everyone. And don't forget... Father's Day is June 19th. Now, I decided not to have a separate bonus podcast uh, for Father's Day. I didn't have one for Mother's Day. Um, I may incorporate some Father's Day stuff, um, but I'm not going to have a separate one uh, for Father's Day. So my apologies for that, but um, I've got some stuff going on. And if, if it's a little echoey, my apologies for that as well, because the room is practically empty. Um, I haven't moved everything back yet because I'm trying to reorganize, but I got the floors redone, so yay! <laughs> oh, so that, uh, they did a great job. I hired uh, Winchester Flooring, and that's in Elizabethan, Tennessee, so any of you locals, if you need your floors done, um, I highly recommend Winchester and Elizabethan, Tennessee. Fantastic job. I didn't even have to be here. Just phenomenal work. Um, looks great. But... Yeah, so if it's echoey, that's why I'm just trying to figure out uh, how I want things rearranged because um, I've got a vision in mind and I don't want it to look the way it did before. So that, that's that's why. And um, if you rem remember from last week and the week before, I mentioned there was going to be food at Mountain View Church of Christ. I hate that you guys missed it. It was great food. We even had steaks. How often do you get steaks at a church dinner or lunch? To my knowledge, not often at all. Um, maybe a handful of times, like special occasions, maybe July 4th or whatever. But every time we meet with uh, Christian brothers and sisters, is a good time to celebrate. So I'm glad we celebrated with steak. Very, very good. So I hate that everyone missed it. Thankfully, there's no food at church today, so I don't have to worry about rushing around, trying to make anything. So I am a little relieved on that. 
I do enjoy it, but I am glad I don't have to cook. And um, I know you're not here to listen to, to me babble on and on. You want to know what the quote of the month is, then you want me to get on into the encyclopedia entries. Well, I don't blame you. The quote of the month, if you recall from last week, I wanted a Father's Day quote, um, but there weren't any in the new Dictionary of Thoughts. Um, but I did find a quote by Dr. Thomas Fuller, who was an English reverend divine. And he said, and I love this, this is about uh, men, This is my dad exemplified this, my grandfather still exemplifies this. Love it, love it, love it. Quote, the real difference between men is energy. A strong will, a settled purpose, an invincible determination can accomplish almost anything. And in this lies the distinction between great men and little men, end quote. Again, that's by Dr. Thomas Fuller, and we will try to read that again uh, before we end. Now, the reason you're all here is for the encyclopedia. So let me go ahead and tell you what the first five words are. Now, last week we ended with amorpha. This week we have amorphii, amorphii, amorphophallus, amorphous, amortize, and emery, robert. And all of these are from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. We will be in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 uh, a handful of times, I think three or four. Um, I can't remember exactly. Um, but we, we won't be in there very often um, today. Okay, number one, amorphii is a noun, plural, things or creatures that have no regular or definite form. Amorphism, noun, a condition of shapelessness. Amorphous or amorphous, having no regular structure or definite form. Amorphozoa, a name sometimes given to the sponges. So there we go. And that reminds me of um, a book. I don't remember what it's called exactly, but I think it was like Amorphites or something. Uh, it was really, really interesting where you shapeshift. So it just kind of reminds me of shapeshifting. But the true definition is, is things are creatures that have no regular or definite form. So there we go. Number two, amorphophallus, and all it says is C. arum. So we haven't gotten to that yet, um, but we will get to that as soon as we get to the ARs. Okay. Number three, amorphous. In chemistry, the uncrystallized in opposition to the crystallized. Condition of bodies. There are substances which, in certain conditions, are capable of crystallization, but in other conditions remain amorphous. Substance after the sugar has been burned in a platina. Okay, hold on, let, let me. Okay, I skipped, the, my apologies. That didn't make any sense. I skipped a line. Okay, so remain amorphous. Thus, pure sugar contains carbon, which appears as an amorphous. As an amorphous substance, after the sugar has been burned in a platina crucible, the same substance, carbon, appears in a crystallized form in the diamond. So there we go. Number four, amortize, or amortis, amortis, verb, 
And it says the reduction or paying off a public debt by means of a sinking fund or a sinking funds. Mortization, noun, the alienation of lands in Mortmain as to a corporation or community which ceases not to exist. A mort, in Old English, as if dead, dejected, depressed. So a mort is dead, dejected, depressed. And a mort, mortis, um, is a dead land. Oh, here we go. I skipped a couple more lines. This kind of this encyclopedia is a little weird right now. And okay, to transfer lands to Mortmain in Old English to destroy or render useless. Mortized or amortization means a liquidation, a paying off, the reduction or paying off a public debt by means of a sinking fund or a sinking fund. Okay, so let's try that again. Amortize. Uh, is to transfer lands to Mortmain in Old English to destroy or render useless. So there we go. Okay. And I'm not sure why I'm having such a hard time reading these today. And our fifth one before break, which I'm definitely going to need a break, is uh, A. Marie, comma, Robert, or Robert A. Marie. He was a physician born in Boston, 1842 on May 3rd. He graduated at Harvard in 1863. He got his MD in 1866 and studied in Paris and Dublin. He was lecturer at Harvard on the physiological action of drugs in 1869, then professor of physiology at Balden Medical College till 1874. He was author of Bromides of Potassium and Ammonium in 1872, Action of Nitrous Oxide in 1870, and important papers on chloral hydrates, pathological action of prussic acid, and photo photography of the spectrum, the volume on poisons in Wharton and Steele's medical jurisprudence, and electrolysis and its applications to treatment of disease in 1886. So I'm assuming he was still alive when this encyclopedia was written. So that's number five. So let's go ahead and go on a very much needed break for me. Welcome back. Our next set of five entries, so six through ten, are Emery, Thomas Coffin, Amos, Amskige, Amount, and more. So number six is a person. Emery, Thomas Coffin, or Thomas Coffin Emery. He was a lawyer and author. He was born in Boston, 1812, and died there in 1889. He graduated at Harvard in 1830 and for many years was connected with the municipal government of Boston. He's the author of Life of James Sullivan, two volumes, 1859, Military Services of Major General John Sullivan in 1868, Life of Sir Isaac Coffin, 1886, The Siege of Newport, a poem, 1888, and Charles River, a poem, 1888. Number seven, Amos. Hebrew prophet about B.C. 784, he was a herdsman of Tekoa in the neighborhood of Bethlehem, also a dresser of sycamore trees. He lived under Jeroboam II of Israel from 790 to 749 B.C. and Uzziah of Judah at least during part of his career. He was in Israel perhaps between 765 and 750, though there are strong reasons for putting him there after 745. 
He was probably a man of position, a fig planter and cattle owner, though he calls himself a fig picker and herdsman, from Tekoa in Judah. See 2 Samuel 14, 2, for the estimate of its people's astuteness in David's time. Near Arabia and the Dedanites, his opportunities for meeting varied human elements had been good. His intellect was vigorous and his nature lofty and his writings show a singular cultivation and refinement which remind one of how often the eastern herdsman thus surprises the traveler. He felt that he had a burning moral message to deliver to the Hebrews, and the place to deliver it was in the far more important northern kingdom than in the flower of its prosperity first and last. During the reigns of Uzziah in Judah and Jeroboam in Israel, he came forward to denounce the idolatry then prevalent. His prophetical writings contain, in the first six chapters, denunciations of the divine displeasure against several states, particularly that of Israel, on account of the worship of idols, which is never a good thing. The three remaining chapters contain his symbolical visions of the approaching overthrow of the kingdom of Israel, and lastly, a promise of restoration. The style of Amos, remarkable for its clearness and picturesque vigor, abounds with images taken from the rural and pastoral life. The canonicity of the book of Amos is well attested both by Jewish and Christian authorities. And number eight, and if you've never read Amos, I highly recommend it. Uh, really good book. Uh, in fact, uh, every book in, in, in the Bible is pretty good. Uh, some of it's a little more difficult uh, to pronounce than others, but yeah, or words in there to pronounce. Amos Kieg Amos is number eight, and that simply says, see Manchester, Manchester, New Hampshire. So we won't get to that until New Hampshire, until the M's. And number nine is amount, amount, which is a verb. It means to rise up to in the whole to reach or extend to, and the in the noun version, it's the sum total, the whole, the result, which is what we're we're used to. We're, we're used to using it as what amount do I pay you or what amount do I get on my paycheck. Um, amounting and amounted are two other words. Number ten, a more, a more noun, which is I, I love this. I love this word, a more. Uh, it means a love affair or intrigue. Ooh. And with that, uh, let's go ahead and go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries, which are numbers 11 through 15, are Amoy, Ampelopsis, and Pierre, comma, Andre Marie, and Pierre, comma, Jean-Jacques Antoine, and impure. And uh, number 11 is Amoy. So Amoy, let me make sure I've got the right spot here. Okay, it's a seaport town of China in a small island of the same name in the province of Pukin, latitude 24 degrees 10 feet north, longitude 118 degrees east, an important commercial emporium of the east. It is divided into an outer and inner town and has an outer and inner harbor the entrance to the former of which, as well as the inner town itself, is fortified. Amoy has been celebrated as a trading town for more than a thousand years. 
and was one of the earliest seats of European commerce in China. The Portuguese had establishments here in the 16th and the Dutch in the 17th centuries. In 1841, it was taken by the British by the Treaty of Nanking, a British consul and the British subjects were permitted to reside there. The trade is now open to all nations, and that's of course in the 1900s, early 1900s. The chief imports are rice, cotton twist, British long clothes, beans, peas, etc. The U.S. is the principal export customer of the port, taking annually tea alone in the value of $4 million. Yeah, I love tea, but I didn't realize it was going to be that expensive. $4 million. The city was pillaged by the Taiping rebels and during the international military operations in China in 1900 was occupied by the Japanese. The population was over 100,000. And number 12 is Empelopsis. And for this one, we actually go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So this is number 12, Empelopsis. A genus of woody vines of the family Vitaceae, consisting of about 25 species in North America and Asia. The plants have simple or divided leaves, small greenish flowers and cymes, and small variously colored grape-like berries. Several of the species, especially A. humifolia, A. japonalca, and A. heterophala, are natives of Asia, are commonly cultivated for covering walls and trellises. And number 13, we are going to go back to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And this is a person, Ampere, or I'm sorry, on par, on pair, on pair. I was pronouncing that incorrectly, which is no surprise if you're a regular listener. On pair, comma, Andre Marie, or Andre Marie on pair. And it is not spelled the way it's pronounced. So to check the spelling, go to the encyclopedia, I'm sorry, go to theoaktreejourneys.com and select Encyclopedia Challenge. And this week's is season one, episode 69. It'll be all the way to the bottom. And this is number 13, if you want to know how to spell this last name. So on, on pair, uh, comma, Andre Marie, uh, born 1775, January 20th, died 1836, June 10th. Born Lyons, distinguished mathematician and naturalist. In 1805, after he had been for some time private mathematical tutor at Lyons, he was called to Paris, where he distinguished himself as an able teacher in the Polytechnic School and began his career as an author by his essay on the mathematical theory of chances. In 1814, he was elected as a member of the Academy of Sciences, and in 1824, was appointed professor of experimental physics in the Collège de France. Scientific progress is largely indebted to him, especially for his electrodynamic theory and his original views of the identity of electricity and magnetism, as given in his Rousseau des Observations Electrodynamics in Paris, 1822, and his Theory of Phenomenons in Electrodynamics. I'm, I'm English, Englishified that. Englishified that. Paris, 1830. So for any of you science folks out there, um, you can thank him for his electrodynamic theories um, for ma magnetism and electricity. So it sounds pretty cool. Number 14. And let me see if I can pronounce this name appropriately because it's spelled the exact same way. So 
on pair, comma, Jean-Jacques Antoine, or Jean-Jacques Antoine on pair, born 1800, August 12th, died 1864, March 27th. He was born in Lyons. He was the son of Andre Marie. So here we have the son of, the person we just talked about. He was a professor of modern literature. So his dad did mathematics and he studied literature in the College de France in Paris and member of the French Academy. After laying the groundwork of his comprehensive studies in Paris, he proceeded to Italy, Germany, and Scandinavia. After the July Revolution, he succeeded Andreix as professor in the College de France and also took the place of Villemin in the Norman School. Many of his linguistic and historico-literary investigations saw the light first in reviews, especially the review Des Mondes. In 1833, he published an essay on the relations of French literature to that of other countries in the Middle Ages. In 1841, an essay on the formation of the French language, a valuable contribution to philology in general. And in 1850, Greece, Rome, and Dante. Ooh, he took on Dante. And number 15 is Empire. So Empire, so I did pronounce this one correctly. Ampere, the unit of electrical current flow. It corresponds in electricity to the flow of water in a pipe in hydraulics. At the ordinary potentials in general use, which is 110 volts, a half ampere is the current required for each 16 candle power incandescent lamp, and about 7 amperes are required to supply a horsepower electric motor, which these are terms we don't normally use anymore. Um, I don't know if electricians still use these words um, or this terminology, but I know normal, normal speak we don't. Uh, see electricity principles of. And with that, let's go to break. And welcome back. Our next set of five entries, so 16 through 20, our ampere turn, ampere turn, M phi. Uh, yes, M phi. I wanted to make sure I was pronouncing that correctly. Amphibia, and amphibia. <laughs> Let me just fix. I noticed I misspelled in the second amphibia, uh, which is easy to do. Okay, so we are still in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. We will not switch over to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 until the next section for the next set of five entries so number 16 is ampere turn and since we just got through uh, talking about on par or on pair i bet you can guess where the where this definition is going so it doesn't say it's pronounced on par or on pair it it says it's pronounced ampere turn so what we're going to go with that and it's a term used in, you guessed it, electromagnetics to express the value of a magnetomotive or magnetizing force. It is numerically equal to the product of one ampere passing through a coil of one single turn or loop, a coil of wire having on it 1,000 turns and with a current of one-fourth ampere passing through it, has a magnetizing value of 250 ampere turns or with two amperes passing through the winding would have 2,000 ampere turns. See electricity principles of. And our 
Second ampere turn, or entry number 17, is the unit of magnetizing force. That's all it says, and also C electricity, principles of. So, so there we go. Number 18 is M phi, M phi, and it's Greek. It's a prefix signifying on both sides about to, used to imply doubt, sometimes changed into ambi or ambi. So amphibia, amphibia or amphibians, noun, animals that can live partly in water, and this is number 19, so we're on number 19, amphibia. Animals that can live partly in water and partly on land, so remember two, amphi means two, on both sides, uh, two. So land and water, so amphibians live partly in water and partly on land, as the seal, walrus, and frog. In zoology, it's restricted to creatures such as the frog and newt, which in early life possess gills, but afterward acquire lungs instead. Amphibian, or amphibial, pertaining to amphibious, able to live partly on land and partly in water, amphibiously, amphibiousness, amphibium, noun, an amphibian, animal, singular of amphibia. So there we go. And number nine, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, number 20, amphibia again, except this one is spelled a little differently. Uh, well, it has a little thing on it. If you want to know how these are spelled again, go to theoaktreejourneys.com. Select Encyclopedia Challenge. This is Season 1, Episode 69. And you can uh, look to see how these are spelled. And uh, amphibia, a class of vertebrate, vertebrate creeping animals comprising the newts, frogs, toads, and several extinct groups, which is classified between the fishes and the reptiles. The most prominent characteristic is indicated by the name, which denotes animals capable of sustaining existence for a considerable time, either on dry land or in water. It is not meant, however, that the amphibia are able to breathe in either air or water at the same time, but that the young are provided with gills and live in water up to a certain age, or in rare cases, permanently, after which they acquire lungs and thereafter breathe atmospheric air. As these young, as a rule, are different from their parents and must undergo metamorphosis from the larval into the adult condition, amphibians as a class are usually said to undergo metamorphosis, but this is equally true of some fishes, and it is not true of all amphibians. So kind of like, all thumbs are fingers, but not all fingers are thumbs. Kind of like that. The term batrachia is also applied to this class. See zoology and batrachia. And with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And when we get back, uh, we are going to look at some larger words that I'm going to practice pronouncing during break. Our next set of five entries for 21 through 25 are knights, amphiblastic, amphiboli, and amphibology, amphibology, and amphibrock, amphibrock. So number 21 is amphibicnites, and it is a huge word, and again, to, to get the spelling of these words, go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, and this is Season 1, Episode 69, and this particular word is word 21. So, uh, 
It's a very long word um, for a short definition. It's a noun, it's plural. In geology, all it means, just really simply, footprints of extinct reptiles. So a huge, ginormous word for a very small definition. <laughs> I love it, I love it though, words are great. And entry number 22, amphiblastic. It's not quite as hard to say, amphiblastic. In germinal ova, designating the intermediate series between the discoid or meroblastic and the vescular or holoblastic, see meroblastic. Um, and it's kind of a blastos, which where blastic comes from, means a sprout or a bud. So it's on both sides or two. So amphi, remember amphi is a, means two. So it's a sprout or a bud, if that helps. I know that particular definition didn't really give us much. Number 23, amphiboli, amphiboli or amphibolite, noun, a mineral, a silicate with various protoxide bases distinguished with difficulty from peroxine, whence the name. Synonym is hornblende, amphibology, ambiguous or equivocal language, a phrase of doubtful interpretation, which we are getting ready to look at in greater detail, and I'm very excited about it. Um, whenever I saw this, I was like, yes, yes, we have to have this. This is from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Very interesting word. Let me make sure I'm on the right page, and of course I'm not. Um, oh, here it is. Amphibology is a statement of such uncertain grammatical structure that the meaning is ambiguous. As in, so here's an example. The Duke yet lives that Henry shall depose. So that's an ambiguous statement. They are frequent in poetry where the usual word order is often altered for metrical purposes. Another type is a statement with an apparent meaning and also a less obvious one as the witch's prophecies in Macbeth. Ancient oracles, rely, oracles relied heavily on amphibologies. And of course they did. <laughs> they had to. But that word is just really, really cool. Amphibology. If you want to know how to spell that, again, theoaktreejourneys.com, season one, episode 69, that is number 24. And uh, select Encyclopedia Challenge. All right, so number 25 before break is Amphibroch, Amphibroch, which is a noun. It's in Latin and Greek poetry, a foot of three syllables, a short, a long, and a short, thus an, as unsteady in English, Poet, poetry used at the end of a line. And there are no examples. I wish there were um, because I really don't know what they're talking about. I write poetry and I just clueless up here. <laughs> All right, and with that, let's go ahead and go to break. And then when we get back, we'll finish up the last set of five entries. Our last set of five entries, so entries 26 through 30, are Amphicarpus, Amphicelus, Amphi Amphictyonic Council, and there are other names for this. I'm not going to try to pronounce it right now. Um, then Amphictyons, 
Amphications. I, I promise I practice these during break, but uh, these, these are pretty long words. And then amphicion, amphicion. And again, to, to uh, learn the spellings of these words, go to theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, Season 1, Episode 69. These are words 26 through 30. So, and these are not, again, these are not uh, spelled the way they are pronounced. And number 26 is amphicarpus, and it means, in botany, having two kinds of fruit. Okay, and number 27 is amphicelis, or amphicelion, and it just simply means, applied to vertebrae, it, which are concave at both ends. There are no examples of that. Number 28. Now, number 28 is going to be a little lengthy. We are going to read first from the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary, then we're going to switch over to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Uh, and both definitions are a little lengthy. Well, actually, the 1909 is lengthier than the 1956, but let's take a look at it. There, uh, The 1956 has different names for it. Um, it goes over some of the names within the definition of the 1909, but it actually spells it out uh, at the beginning of the, the entry in the 1956. So let's go ahead and read what an Amphictyonic council is. A central politico-religious court of several Grecian tribes. There were many Amphictyonies in the early days of Greek history, of which by far the most important was the Amphictyony of Delphi. It was held twice a year. In spring, the members assembled in the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, in autumn in the Temple of Ceres at the village of Anthela near Thermopylae. The purpose was twofold. One, to determine questions of international law, and two, to preserve the religious institutions of the Greeks. It is generally supposed that they originated out of a desire for social union and were consequently a result of the national instinct for civilization. Like the Olympic Games of a later period, their tendency was to develop a spirit of brotherhood where it was greatly required. The restless Greek intellect and its application to political life had naturally an excessive and perilous love of individualism, out of which rose the numerous strifes and animosities of the various states. These councils, on the other hand, were calculated to exert a wholesome centralizing influence. They knit together for a time the distracted tribes in a bond of common interest and piety. Like the Olympic Games, too, they became the occasion of vast gatherings of the Greek peoples who crowded thither for every variety of purpose, sacred and secular. And thus a feeling of unity and pure national patriotism was, temporarily at least, excited in the popular mind. The special origin of the AC, or the League, of Delphi is unknown, though we know that the League was composed of 12 tribes. The ancient writers differ in the names of these, but the list given by the orator Machines, though containing only 11, is perhaps the safest to adhere to. The Thessalonians, or Th Th Thessalonians, Th Thessalonians, the Oceans, Dorians, Ionians, Parabians, Magnetes, Locretians, Aetians, Theots, Melians, and Phaeacians. Probably the remaining tribe was the Dolopians, who are mentioned in other accounts. It has been justly concluded that the great preponderance of the northern tribes who were of the old Pelasgic race proves the antiquity of the council. It must have been older than the descent of the Dorians upon the Peloponnesus 
or the immigration of the Ionians to the coasts of Asia Minor. Each of the 12 tribes sent to the AC, oh, two members. So each tribe sent two members, so 24 people. These 24 representatives possessed equal authority, although some of the tribes were very small and hardly independent. They bound themselves by an oath that they, quote, would destroy no city of the Amphicateans, nor cut off their streams in war or peace, and if any should do so, they would march against him and destroy his cities, and should any pillage the property of the god or the privy to, or plan anything against what was in his temple at Delphi, they would take vengeance on him with hand and foot and voice and all their might. End quote. That's from Machines. These, this excellent oath was very indifferently kept. In the primitive period of Greek history, it probably exerted a beneficial and civilizing influence, but it was only a feeble check to the passions and ambition of a more powerful age. The members at times connived and took part in many outrageous political crimes and thus violated their oath. By the time of the Mosthians, the AC had ceased to command respect in the second century after Christ, it still existed, but was then on the verge of extinction, which we're kind of living through now. Uh, I won't get into modern political stuff, but you know, we can kind of see parallels <laughs> between history and what's going on now. It's hard not to see that. Okay, so let's go ahead and read it from the point of view from 1956. So the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Um, they call it the Amphicatonic League, which we heard it was called the League, um, or Delphic Amphicatoni, something like that. And it says it was the greatest of several ancient Greek councils. These councils were the closest approach to representative government in the ancient world. They began as religious organizations among neighboring tribes to regulate the use of shrines at which they all worshipped. The Delphic Amphicatoni was composed of deputies from 12 Greek tribes, each of which sent two deputies to assemble each year at Delphi and again at Thermopylae. Their main concerns were the safety of the shrines, the protection of pilgrims going to and from them, and the conditions of the roads leading to them. By the 6th century BC, the powers of the League had grown and it was able to forbid the destruction of any member city. It enforced this rule by warring on any who defied it as in the first sacred war that was from 593 to 585 BC against the Ephesian city of Crissa. So we got a little deeper, but not, I didn't really expand too much on, on the, what happened politically in the 1956. But I am glad we read the 1956 to kind of go along with it. And number 29 is Infections which is a noun, it's deputies, so here we go, this goes right along with it, deputies who came from the states of ancient Greece to a sacred council, which is always the AC or the league. And number 30 is Amphikion, Amphikion noun, and this is a fossil carnivorous quadruped. So it's a fossil. And before we go, um, that was the 30th entry. Uh, don't forget, Camp NaNoWriMo is next month. So if you uh, want to write or just kind of dive into writing or, uh, or, or just experiment with writing a little bit, uh, go to Camp NaNoWriMo. Uh, just go to NaNoWriMo.org. It is free. Again, I know I've mentioned this a few times, uh, but it's worth mentioning every time. If you find 
that a, a site is asking you to pay or if you click a link and it's asking you to pay, that's the wrong site. It's nanowrimo.org. You don't pay. It's free. You can donate, and there are donation days, but you are not required to donate ever, 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 ever. Um, and also check out my Teespring store. I know I, I don't mention it very often, um, but my link for my Teespring store is in the description below. And if you want to send me an email, my email address is in the description below as well as mandyoaks.protonmail.com. Um, again, my website is theoaktreejourneys.com, and you can explore. There are different things. There are books there um, that link up to Amazon, and one book in particular um, may be going away soon. It's Love Gone Viral. I don't get a penny of that. Um, no one who wrote uh, in that book gets a penny of it. It goes to Feeding America. Uh, so every penny earned on that book goes to, or is donated. So it is donated. Um, and we know during the summertime, uh, kids don't always get to eat. Uh, they, they just don't. Uh, if they don't have the school breakfast and lunch, they don't get to eat. Uh, so this is a really important um, thing. Feeding America is extremely important. And local donations uh, for food pantries are important as well. I know a lot of churches have those. So if you are one of those, or you know a family, uh, please just go to a local church, go to Feeding America, or if you just want to help donate without actually having to buy food, and you want to read something, too, I go to uh, theoaktreejourneys.com, and it's my first page. It, it, it pops up under books, um, and uh, it is Love Gone Viral. Uh, that is, and you can see whenever you click, click on the book or the link, I think I've got the link set up to where when you click on the image of the book, it automatically pops up to uh, to Amazon. I'll double check, but I'm, I'll double check before I post this podcast. So by the time this podcast posts, it will do it. Whether it does it now or not, it will by the time this posts. Um, but yeah, just check that out. There, it's a closed door romance. Uh, so definitely, uh, I don't know when the book is going to go. It's going to be phased out, but there is talk of it being phased out um, soon, so you won't be able to get it um, after after a certain amount of time. I, again, I don't know when that's going to be. I haven't talked to the main uh, person who put this together. Uh, Meg Napier, I believe, is is the name she goes by on there. Uh, so I haven't talked to her yet uh, to see when it's going to be phased out, but again, it, it will be phased out soon. And before we go, I do want to read the quote by Dr. Thomas Fuller again. So for all of you men out there or for anyone who had a strong father or a strong father figure, this is for you for Father's Day and honor Father's Day. And don't forget, June 19th is Father's Day. The real difference between men is energy, a strong will, a settled purpose, an invincible determination can accomplish almost anything. And in this lies the distinction between great men and little men. And again, I'm going to read it one more time because I, just, I love that quote. It's again by Dr. Thomas Fuller. The real difference between men is energy. A strong will, a settled purpose, an invincible determination can accomplish almost anything. And in this lies the distinction between great men and little men. And... Also, the uh, 
what can also accomplish almost anything is prayer. So for those of you who do pray, I'd like to ask prayers for me. Uh, just please pray for me. Keep me in your prayers. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much uh, for listening. And I hope you tune in next week. Again, I won't have a bonus for Father's Day. I'll just kind of incorporate it uh, if everything goes well. I, had, I did have some technical difficulties early on with this podcast. Hopefully, I'll be able to post it uh, in time. Hopefully, those technical difficulties have been taken care of. So, with that, I bid you a blessed week and also bid you adieu. <laughs>